Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. After two months, the worst of the corona crisis in many countries seems to be behind us. Slowly, countries and states are opening up, releasing roadmaps on relaxing their quarantine measures and taking steps to allow people to go back to work. Nevertheless, for the time being, it seems continue to work from home where possible will be the best practice for the foreseeable future. But whenever employees do return to the office on a regular basis, it is also clear that companies will need to prepare. The new normal of the six-foot society and social distancing will cause a challenge in itself to be accommodated in offices, and also from a privacy and data protection perspective, there is a lot to consider. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. I just wanted to touch base between you and I to talk seriously about coming to the end of the quarantine for COVID-19 what are our concerns about people returning to work, returning to some sense of normalcy? And you and I were just talking about personally, funny enough, led into this conversation about um, our weekends. So this was Mother's Day weekend. It was also here. Uh, wonderful. I, I've never kept up to whether or not that was a worldwide on the same day or not. I think sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But this year it coincided at least. This year it did. So and I was just asking you about uh, in the Netherlands, whether or not you were released to go outside or not. And it was my understanding you had been, but then you were giving me some more details as to what that means. Yes, we have we have been allowed to go outside uh, from from the moment all of this got started, um, but under severe restrictions. So you can go out as many times a day as you want. But you have to keep one and a half meters apart, so six foot apart, uh, for the the non-metric people listening in. Um, and the one and a half meters apart basically applies in 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 every scenario. You are allowed to uh, to meet friends outside, but if it's more than two people outside, then uh, the police can also enforce the one and a half meters apart with. The two, if it's if you are next to each other, um, it would be legally okay, but it's still uh, encouraged to keep the uh, uh, the distance, the social distancing. But going outside as such is fine. So we don't have to stay in our houses, although it is strongly recommended. Stay as home as much as you can. Don't go outside if you don't have to. But also the government here understands that if people really have to stay inside all the time, especially those of us living in, in, in apartment buildings, maybe even without a terrace or a balcony or a garden, um, that you really would go crazy. So <laughs> in general, they would say you are allowed to go outside, go outside to exercise. You can do your shopping. 
Um, most shops that did close closed voluntarily. As of today, we have seen the first um, relaxation of measures. So primary schools have reopened in part. Um, so oh, wow. kids are allowed to go back to school, but not all of them in uh, in the class at the same time because also they need to stay the, the one and a half meters apart. Um, hairdressers are open again. Um, so ours opened on Friday. So we can finally get a haircut again. Um, and further uh, further relaxation is foreseen as of June 1st, if all goes well. Um, that's a big caveat. But if the numbers stay as they are in, in decline, then uh, we would be allowed to go to outside bars again as of 1st of June. Um, small groups are allowed into restaurants again, also in museums and theaters, but no more than 30 people in total in the building. Wow. I don't know that we go down to the number of people allowed in a building. I know that um, in hair salons and nail salons, hair and nail, open this weekend. And frankly, I'm not going, but I do believe it was allowed to be open on Friday. But that's just Arizona, right? That's not nationwide. Not nationwide, Arizona. Originally, when our governor issued the, you know, some states call it shelter in place, quarantine, whatever you want to call it. Um, he had allowed hair salons and nail salons to be part of the essential services that remained open. And of course, a lot of people called him on that. Is that really essential services? But he clarified he actually didn't know that um, certain personal hygiene ones would um, qualify under specific requirements for what should be open or not open based on essential or non-essential businesses. I, however, have not had a haircut or had my hair done in since the beginning, and I started quarantining under the voluntary quarantine back at the end of middle to the end of February because uh, I'm one of the vulnerable populations with lupus, and my mom was living here who was over 70. So we both, uh, my husband and I, both voluntarily quarantined my husband's job at that time before there was an order for it had allowed that anyone that had vulnerable populations at home could choose to work mm-hmm. from home uh, rather than coming into work. And But he still had co-workers that were going into work up until the point when the governor said, no, only essential workers are allowed to actually go to work. Everybody else must close. I've been self-quarantining for two months as of tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I started counting mine on March the 13th, but had actually started quarantining about two weeks before that, I think, under the, the whole voluntary thing. Yeah, no, I've, uh, I I think I've been self-quarantining since uh, the night of March 11th. Uh, because oh, wow. That is, uh, that is when I came back from my last trip abroad. Um, <laughs> I remember that. And I remember with a that. cold at the time, they told you, well, self-quarantine if you can. So I did. And then later that week, the country was shut down. Right, right. And my sense of timing and all of that is completely messed up. I know that I officially started counting it on March the 13th because it was Friday the 13th. Yes. I said, oh, what the heck? That's a good day to start counting from. So so I did that, but we're here to not only talk about what we ourselves have, have been doing, which I'm sure resonates with a lot of our listeners, but also what are the concerns 
both during the quarantine time, which you and I had a fantastic conversation about this in one of our early, early podcasts, uh, but then also if things are starting to open back up. So here we've never been limited to you could only have two people over or anything like that. You weren't allowed to congregate in groups of 10 outside. We have twice had family get-togethers outside um, on the front porch. Everybody separated. Um, they came over for Mother's Day yesterday. We probably were not as separated as we should have been because my children are also vulnerable. Both of my children also have autoimmune. So we probably were not as segregated as we should have been, but it was Mother's Day. I mean, what Cheryl's love more than giving coronavirus, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we th that was really prohibited here. So th those kind of things, keep your distance, keep your distance, keep your distance. Um, and that's especially hard for the elderly in care homes because they were not allowed to have any visitors. They were locked down in full um, to pr to protect the people inside. Um, but obviously... That now, is... did y'all have stories of people coming and sitting outside their windows oh, yes. and talking to them and stuff? I mean, we yeah. had a lot of that around here. Not easy. One of my friends, friend of a friend, uh, I know her remotely, but the friend, the mutual friend is a very good friend. Uh, 911 just came and picked up her daughter. Now, her daughter's an adult, but 911 just came and picked up her daughter uh, to take her to the emergency room. And, of course, mom couldn't go with her. Not permitted. Yeah, um, those are heartbreaking stories. Yeah, and and the women going in and having babies during this time, a lot of them are not allowed to have their spouse or significant other with them. Um, I have a friend that is about to have surgery tomorrow, and this was surgery for cancer that was put off when all of this started. It was considered an elective surgery for cancer, and she's going in to have surgery tomorrow, and she can't have her family with her. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sorry, I know a lot of surgeries are considered common nowadays, but just because they're common and they happen often doesn't negate the actual danger of something happening during that. You're still being put under anesthesia. It's still scary. Yeah, absolutely. And um, at least the good thing is that the healthcare systems are back able to cope with the the more regular uh, procedures so that people who yeah, are on goodness. waiting lists to get those operations can can actually have them. Um, that the pressure yeah. is a bit off the healthcare systems by now, um, but we are far from being in the clear. Yeah, but now we're we're about to clear people to start returning to work. Well, you know, I think we might actually be pretty early in, in discussing this because I don't expect anybody really returning to work until the end of the summer. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. That may be true there over here. I I, I don't see that. I mean, we just allowed non-essential services to open back up slowly. And so people will be returning to work for those. And I think most of them have a plan of skipping like two or three weeks between stages to see what happens. Now, I'm with you. I don't really see us having a return to normal for quite a long time. One of the virtual networking we just did for the Privacy and Security Forum by Dan Soloff and Paul Schwartz, they just made it a virtual event and they had some networking events to it. I think it actually went very, very well as a virtual Privacy and Security Forum. Went excellent. And uh, one of the small sessions we had for networking, one of the gentlemen in there, Keith, said that we need to quit calling this the new normal. This is not a new normal. This is... 
He said he wouldn't even call it a transitional normal. We're just in a transitional time. Um, I think I would take that one step further and say we're in a transformative time. I hope some of the things that we've learned during this time will actually carry over. But regardless, I'm with you. I think that wave two of the infection will come as soon as we start releasing people to do things. Um, I think we have records showing the, what is it, the 1918 Spanish flu mm -hmm. shows that the, the second wave of infection was much worse than the first so I, I'm a former registered nurse, and so I strongly believe that there is going to be wave two of infections, and it terrifies me um, because I've already started losing family and friends of friends. I've got a few personal friends myself that have been infected by it. Uh, none of them have died that I know of. But in this day and age, with people talking to each other less and less necessarily in person, yeah, it's um, it 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 will be a very, very difficult time going forward, and there will be a wave two and a wave three, and and how many more, until we have that vaccine, uh, that that can be produced at mass scale, so that everyone can benefit from it. Right. But, I mean, nevertheless, even if returning to work in a normal capacity is far off and it might be closer in the US, you are right, than, than here in Europe where the general message still is uh, continue to work from home whenever possible. Companies should start preparing whatever, uh, whenever people will return to work. Um, at some point they will come back to the office, although I doubt I will be in the Trust right. offices in San Francisco still before the end of the year. Um, I, I have <laughs> I have no faith that I will be able to catch a plane to San Francisco uh, still this year. Um, but <laughs> maybe, maybe... Yeah, I think international travel is going to be way restricted for a long time. Yes, but maybe, maybe some of you are allowed to go back into the office. And there is a lot that needs to be taken care of uh, from specific policies to how do we deal with all the health information? How do we deal with our own data health? Uh, so not health data, but data health. Um, right. How do we deal with all the compliance issues that may have been skipped in in recent uh, months uh, while we were in the crisis and just had to make sure that work got done? So yes, there are a lot of things that uh, that, that we can review. Right. And I agree, especially when it comes to the other compliance issues, because going outside the realm of privacy and looking at compliance, whether it is on harassment or discrimination or a hostile work environment, it's my understanding, and I've only heard anecdotal evidence that this is becoming a big issue with remote work, because of the relaxed atmosphere, people are starting to take video conference calls a lot less seriously. It's starting to become more rote and therefore standards are relaxing. I know one person whose company put out a message and said, you know, it doesn't matter if everybody is still working from home, you still must dress business casual. No wearing t-shirts or jogging suits or anything like that. My immediate response was to scoff and to say, who cares what you wear as long as you've got clothes on? Um, maybe, maybe, there is a, maybe there is a real rationale to this. Maybe there still does need to be standards because um, people are starting to get really emotional. And so things that they might not normally take as a wrong way, maybe 
they are starting to take as an insult or to take the wrong way. Maybe people are starting to get um, a little testy, maybe, with each other. I know that uh, I had some friends that were sniping at each other recently over a meeting, and it was several meetings in a row. Um, so maybe there are some things other than just privacy and security, as you say, in work that might be important uh, for other compliance measures and just for interpersonal relationship skills altogether. Oh, absolutely. I think that like we had to adjust to work from home, I think a lot of people will also have to readjust working in the office. Uh, and also because... <laughs> I like that, readjust. <laughs> also because the office will be different. Um, uh, at least many offices will be different. Also there, keeping the six feet apart um, will pose a lot of challenges. So uh, how will you reposition all your cubicles are you able to do that or are you going to have schedules right. where people can work every other day so that the others can work uh, the days that you are not there uh, and how will you do that with teams um, how will you make sure that people right. who need to be in meetings together can be in meetings together or will those still be virtual uh, for the foreseeable future um, those are all kind of right. things that companies will need to think about. Um, you can't just say, okay, people come back and pretend like nothing has happened in the past two to three months. Right, exactly. And I know TrustArc had just moved into new facilities so I've uh, heard. right when all of this was happening. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, more of an open environment. And I know that they uh, kept one huge section open with no cubicles in there, just lots of tables and no people that way people could have the opportunity to spread out and have some space. They they at least have that opportunity now to be able to use that space to help people be able to spread out for those that go to work. I probably won't be going into the office for a while. I live in Arizona. The company office is in San Francisco. So probably not as bad as you with the travel time and the complications, but But also <laughs> probably you are not won't looking forward to for hopping on a flight. While. Exactly. Uh, my mom actually just flew back home to Mississippi this past week. And yes, I was terrified for her the whole time. But um, she said that the airlines assured her that the planes were essentially empty, wasn't going to be an issue. She said if the planes were essentially full, that they were completely packed. And maybe that's because they reduced the number of flights. And so they have more people on one flight. Who knows? Yeah. But I know they were making changes to the flights up to the last minute. So probably something along those lines. Well, for me, it's very easy. The European Union has still closed the outside borders. So um, unless for essential personnel, I'm I'm not even allowed to go uh, to, to travel outside of the European Union. Um, and uh, also a lot of intra-EU borders are still closed uh, or at least strictly That's monitored. That's what I was going to ask. What about intra? Well, officially, they, they cannot be closed because we have... Uh, freedom of movement. But even then, some of the borders are closed uh, to allow the, the governments to monitor who's going in and out and, and track the spread of the disease. But also nobody really wants to travel at the moment. Uh, everybody is concerned about summer holidays. That is the, the only travel people may look forward to. But I haven't heard anyone uh, looking forward to business travel in any short time. <laughs> well, you know, on, on a personal note, it may also be those business clothes may fit a little snugger well, than normal. There is the, uh, the the amount of Corona kilos is exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So let's talk now, and like you said, it might be a little premature, but let's talk about some of the, the privacy issues around not only the quarantine at home now, which I know we've talked before, but which ones have come in to materialize? And then what would companies need to do when they start considering allowing people to come back into work other than trying to maintain social distance? Um, I do consider as maintaining hygiene. So making sure there's plenty of hand sanitizer and all that good stuff around. But what about privacy? We talked earlier um, in one of our podcasts about there being privacy issues of people working from home, not necessarily having the right software on their computers, not having the updates. If people liked working with documents, having maybe sensitive work documents laying around their home, whether they have a home office or their dining room table, saving documents on local devices rather than working with them through document storage, different things along that line. So have you seen um, some of these privacy concerns materialize or do you think we're going to find out later there were bigger breaches that we didn't even identify at this time? Yeah, that's the data health part I was talking about. And I do think that the outcome of that is is still unclear, but that we will see um, a lot going forward. Data breach notifications is the first thing that, that springs to mind there. There will be data breaches, um, also ones that haven't been discovered yet. And um, I think that companies should be careful when people are returning to work to verify what information was used on personal devices, what printouts were made and, and lying around at home. And not in a not in an angry negative way, not as a, right. a, a sort of telling off people what have you done, but more informative, okay, we all understand that you had to do this and that you had to use your own devices and that you had to make printouts. Um, but is there anything that honestly has gone wrong? Because if so, then we know about it and then we can act upon it. Right. And making sure that uh, devices, when they come back to work, are checked out and cleared. I call it a health check, both for devices and people. Making sure that the devices are cleared, they're clear of malware before they connect to the company network. Uh, different things along that line. I know that two-factor authentication has been put in place at a lot of companies now in order to help facilitate some of that. But you know that there's people whether they were issued laptops or not, that are probably using personal devices just for convenience, mm -hmm. just because it's whatever they're accustomed to using. Um, or they're loaning their work devices out to children and spouses to keep people occupied. Maybe there is no other device in the house other than their work device. I know a lot of families like that. Yes, absolutely. So also there, the, the security scans are important. Um, if two-factor authentication, for example, isn't something that companies have considered already. Um, it is something that it, that you should consider now because uh, there will also be lessons learned from the past months working from home. So a bigger evaluation of what has happened these past months um, in terms of uh, privacy, data protection, a gap assessment for your policies and procedures, are they all fit for people working from home, um, is another thing that the privacy officers should put on their work list for the very foreseeable future. Because if there will be a second wave or a third wave, and we will be going back to work from home for a while, um, now is the chance to make sure that that second time that we do it right, 
Um, so that or should be or the third time. Or the third time. Right yeah. So you should do it now um, and then benefit from it later. Um, but two factor authentication is, is certainly part of that. Um, I can also envisage that a lot of organizations will have very quickly, hastily put in place um, new software to allow people to work from home better. I've implemented right. new uh, video conferencing software, have new chat software um, installed, um, but maybe without doing... Document a, sharing protocol. Exactly, but maybe without doing an impact assessment or a risk assessment on all of those. So also those still will need to be performed, even if it is in hindsight, then at least you know that going forward, if you have to use them again, or if you continue to use them, um, that um, all the compliance issues uh, have been addressed. Right. And not only going back and doing the documentation that the various privacy laws may require specifically under GDPR, the impact assessments, the records of processing activities, making sure you've done your due diligence over your vendors. So there's also enhancing your policies, such as in your disaster recovery, you might not have specifically addressed pandemics, but not only taking account of it is one of those risks that how likely is this to occur? And if it did occur, what would be the impact of it? So accounting for it in that, but also having a plan in place for pandemics. And did you identify alternative vendors? I mean, this is one of the funny things that we get faced with is have you identified alternative vendors for the services you offer? That's kind of hard to ask when if you're a hosted business because there's not that many service providers out there and specifically none that you could quick over immediately should something go down. Um, but of course, something that we've taken into account. One of the things that TrustArc has done, and listeners know that Paul and I stay away from um, self-advertising, but one of the things we've done because of the requests that we've received for people is we did launch a COVID-19 resource um, that includes key questions that companies should address when reopening, such as can you require employees to return to the office? Can you require temperature screenings of all people who enter the facilities? Which here in the U.S., the guidance of that has, has changed as the pandemic has gotten worse. Can you require employees to use contact tracing or an exposure notification app? Very controversial across the world. Okay, let's 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 dive into those temperature and and mobile apps for a moment. Uh, because <laughs> I figured one of those would catch your attention. As you say, they are they are controversial, and so let's let's start with the with the temperatures first, um, because that is a debate that is actually ongoing in my Twitter feed as we record this, because data protection authorities across Europe apparently have come to the conclusion that just taking somebody's temperature would not be a processing of personal data, even if it's done with an electronic device, because there would be no recording of it. Um, so if I just have a thermometer, one of those handhelds that can measure you at distance, uh, and I scan you and it gives me 36.6 Celsius, um, then you're fine. Or if it gives 38.1, then you have a fever. Apparently, according to most data protection authorities, that would not be considered as processing personal data because the, it because is not. Because all you're doing is taking the temp and you're not writing it down. Exactly. But nowhere in the GDPR it says that it actually has to be recorded if it is an automated processing because it is an, it is an electronic device that you use, except if you have one of these very old fashioned thermometers, but those you probably wouldn't use in the workplace because. 
of hygiene issues. So one of those automated things, it would always fall under the definition of data processing under the GDPR. And yet data protection authorities have said, no, we don't consider that data processing maybe under public under public pressure because so many companies want to do it to make sure or to give some level of comfort to co-workers and visitors and shoppers and I don't know who. Um, but there is no clear legal explanation yet why they consider that not to be a data processing operation. You know, I consider that interesting because we're also going to have a, a DPIA form for COVID-19 pandemic response activities for companies. And in there, we account for the fact that the information you're collecting may not be retained. Now, if you think about that, that means it's not written because even a retention period of an hour or a day would be retained. Mm -hmm. And so when we say that it may not be retained, what we're actually saying is you might not be writing this down. Yes, correct. And uh, I've also... But they're still taking information. They do. Um, and I've read reports from, from, for example, China, where stores now have an automated setup where you even see yourself on screen with a picture and the temperature that was measured for you. Well, that would certainly be data processing uh, that falls under privacy legislation. I, I agree with you. It is, I think it's still processing a personal data. Maybe they're making a wide sweep exception that uh, this wouldn't fall under anything regulated because it's in the public interest, public health. I still think it's processing personal data, but if you're not writing it down, maybe the the practical effect of it is makes it immaterial. I think so too, and and um, I think the DPAs also want to avoid the headlines that somebody is quoting in my Twitter feed. Data protection professionals claim that only analogous thermometers are eligible to fight COVID-19. <laughs> that is, those are also not the headlines that you would like to see. So right. it, is, it is an understandable position from the data protection authorities, I think. I just can't see how it is a, a, a position that is based on the GDPR or anything in law without any further explanation. It is just statements that they give. It is not data processing, not it is a data processing that we that we allow under a public For health For all practical exception. purposes, isn't really, yeah, I get it. If, if you're going to have guidance issued by a data protection authority, you want them to be precise. Exactly. And not leave questions out there for you to challenge someone else because I to my understanding, it would still be processing. I get where they would say maybe it's not processing that needs to be regulated because for a practical basis, you're not doing something. But what about this contact tracing or exposure notification apps? Let's dig into that one a little bit. You really want to open up that Pandora's box? Probably not, but hey, it's wild and crazy. Well, I think in, in short, it's a mess. Um, I think... Almost every single country in the world is considering using mobile apps from obviously China and Singapore, uh, where they have already been uh, been implemented. Uh, India has implemented mobile apps as well, even though they, ex they are returning to work. But at the same time, they expect the peak to come in the next six weeks. Um, all over Europe, apps are being considered. Um, I assume especially in the US, for quarantine enforcement, especially well for quarantine enforcement, but also for uh, for contact tracing. Right. Um, so you basically have two types of apps that that are considered by the various governments. Um, 
you have the mobile apps that work on the basis of Bluetooth um, and sometimes in combination with uh, location data from cell phone towers or GPS um, that would do contact tracing. So they keep track of who you encounter during the day, keep a record of that in your phone usually, uh, decentralized. Some proposals are also for centralized capture. Uh, most of them are for decentralized capture. Um, so that um, if you are the one to be um, uh, to be infected, you can have your phone send an alert to the other persons that you have that you have encountered, um, telling I have been uh, infected. Um, you may want to get tested yourself as well. And usually, and would you know who that came from, no. or would you just get an anonymous text? Because I hate to say it. Well, no, I don't hate to say it because I'm going to say it. That's actually pretty sexy for use of data. I mean, I'm sorry. I know there's whole tons of privacy implications there, but the ability to use technology to immediately effectuate a public health warning. Yes, level. absolutely, and that is that is true. And it could be it could be really good. Um, but yeah. that is though. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying no. it's. I mean, the general idea would be would be really useful, and it would also save health authorities a lot of time in contacting everybody that you can remember that you have been in touch with um, to alert them that assuming, they may have been exposed. And I'm assuming this would include people that you you don't know if you're walking through a store, yes, or but, something along that line. It would notify people you you wouldn't even have the ability to be able to put it, and the only thing else they could do is you can notify the store and they could put up a notice anyone that was in the store on this date at this time was exposed to someone i mean how effective is that it's not it's not and you don't even know because you don't know the exact time when you were uh when you were able to spread the infection since uh, covid19 uh is also infectious if you are not showing any symptoms right so that complicates it already yeah. There is discussion about a, a threshold for a certain period of time. You need to be close to somebody uh, to be contagious in the first place. But um, that set aside, yes, of course, it, it would be good if people could be alerted that way. And frankly, well, but frankly, the GPS for those contact tracing apps would be ineffective in that regard because it doesn't trait, it doesn't pinpoint someone's accuracy. You would have to have device device distance in order to actually get the accuracy from that that is for the the contact tracing absolutely the the the, the most effective what the um the gps or the cell phone location data could do is monitor the spread of a uh, of a of a new infection uh, heard uh, in a certain location so if you if you know that uh people have been tested a lot of people have been tested in the same zip code or the same area code. Then you could also uh, have um, uh, new lockdown measures for that area specifically. So that is why location right. data could be useful. They could also be used at a more aggregate level. Second category of apps, and then I'll come to all the, the challenges that these pose, but the second category of apps would combine the contact tracing with a score. Of your um, uh, of yourself. So, am I am I in the clear? Am I green? Or have I been uh, closer to people who who may have been affected, or could I have been infected myself? Um, so then you could have a sort of traffic light system going from green to red or even black via amber. Which China has been using that very effectively. Exactly, which China has been using. So that is the second more advanced, I would say, category of apps. 
that would also work still on the basis of that that Bluetooth uh, tracking and tracing. One of the challenges with the Bluetooth-based apps is um, that they don't work as well on iPhones because uh, the iPhone at the moment doesn't allow the Bluetooth uh, to run in the background. So you Uh. would need to keep the app open all the time when you are outside for it to be effective. Which people would have to remember to do that. And, you know, we we fail. Exactly. Plus it drains your battery. Yeah. So that might not be as effective. It is something that Apple and Google are working on to, to allow that monitoring to be done in the background in combination with an official government-approved app. Um, and that should be yeah, released in a couple of weeks. Yeah, let's talk about how weeks. much we trust that to be secure or not. Well, they have released all the information also from uh, from the code, the source code, uh, for uh, for those parts of the tracking. So... That would be, uh, from the reports I've seen, it would be fairly secure. The thing is that you as know, soon as Google you... turned around, if Google turned around and put all the power at its disposal into privacy and security, we would see significant changes. Absolutely. The problem is, as soon as you activate those apps and they work on the basis of Bluetooth, it means your Bluetooth is on all the time which then allows for others to use Bluetooth beacons to do Bluetooth tracking, which, of course, is um, privacy intrusive. That would be a negative side effect. Then there is the question if all the apps can be developed safely. Um, Indeed, will there be decentralized storage? So will the storage be on the devices themselves, or will the data be in a central government-run database, or um, maybe even worse, a third-party-run central database? Um, for all the tracking and tracing. That is certainly something to take a look at. And then there is all the technology that is being used behind the scenes. So there are ways, there is a protocol in development for decentralized, privacy-friendly storage of the information with good encryption that in combination with uh, the new software that Apple and Google are developing together, that would actually uh, be pretty privacy-friendly and then indeed be using data for good. So in the way that we would like to see it, that phones could alert other phones if there is an infection. So that would be that would be the most positive way to use those apps. But then again, these are very complicated mobile apps um, that have to be yeah. developed in a very short period of time. There needs to be some interoperability also between the apps in multiple countries if you want to go abroad without installing a gazillion apps for every country that you need to travel to. So some standardization would be welcome as well. And there is hardly any coordination taking place. Another concern. And then because the apps are being built so quickly, um, they are often built on existing platforms. Um, And those existing platforms could also have all kinds of trackers in them that the developers inadvertently or deliberately may forget to switch off. The UK is currently running a test of the NHSX app, um, which is the UK version of the contact tracing app, um, which is only available on the Isle of Wight for the moment. So a very very clear group of people who are uh, able to to use the app also pretty secluded because they are on an island within an island community. Um, So it is a good place to, to test such an application. 
and the government said, no, there are no tracking and tracing uh, uh, possibilities in the app other than what we intend, the Bluetooth uh, connectivity. And Privacy International actually tore down the app over the weekend and found all kinds of trackers still functioning within the application. So that also shows how important it is that all these mobile apps are are under public scrutiny, that they have public source codes, um, and that they can be publicly reviewed to make sure that they um, um, uh, that they are indeed safe, secure, and not doing more than they claim that they do. Right, I agree, and I know that we're coming up on time where we probably need to um, put off further conversation on return to work to another conversation between you and I. I really love the conversations between the two of us when we're just openly discussing what might currently be a hot topic in the market. But for this, we'll make sure to put a link or two of some references in the notes for people to be able to look at. For contact tracking, Paul Schwartz actually just released a wonderful article on IAPP about the COVID-19 surveillance app. So we'll make sure to put that as well as any links to the ones that Paul was specifically talking about um, also in there. And so as we bring it to a close, Paul, is there anything in particular that we should say if people are going to take away from our conversation today, what would it be? That return to work's not going to be as easy and simple as it might seem? Yes, think before you act, because um, just returning to um, to the work to the work and the world that you were used to before COVID nineteen just isn't possible. There is a lot to uh, to take into account. A lot has changed or will change going forward, and that also means that from a compliance perspective, you will need to uh, review all those steps and make sure that you document what is required, that you assess what is required, and then mitigate what is required. I love it. Indeed, this brings us to the end of another episode of Serious Privacy. If you liked our episode, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustart.com or via our Twitter feed uh, at, at Podcast Privacy. Kay, you can reach her on Twitter via Heart of Privacy and myself at EuropolB. Please subscribe to our podcast because new episodes will then automatically land in your feed. And uh, if you want to be a guest on the show or have ideas on what we should discuss, feel free to reach out of, uh, to reach out as well. Until our next episode. Bye, y'all. Bye for now. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks 
using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>